Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today we have Ryan Wienko, the project director for the upcoming title known as Fractured Veil. Thanks for joining, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you could make it because after taking a look at your Kickstarter page, it sounds like you're really trying to uh, take a step and advance the survival crafting genre. Yeah, um, I guess which, that's one way to put it. Yeah, which I'm excited to dive into. But um, before we get into the actual game itself, I always like to start these episodes by talking about the people behind the game. So, Ryan, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into gaming? Ooh, that is a long story that we will break your records for longest podcast with. But I got I don't know. Into I've had some long stories. We'll see. Okay. Well, mine isn't going to be as, it's not going to be as storied as like a Molyneux or a uh, Carmack, but I got into gaming about 20, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, when I was running a, a different company, a telecommunications company, and I was playing an MMO and I had a bunch of servers for my other business. And I just emailed the makers of the MMO just saying, hey, if you ever need any, someone to host your game files because back mm -hmm. then we had to mirror files and do all of that stuff right uh, let me know and i'll help you out and then a week later i got the call from this random german dude and he was like yeah ryan this is martin schwitzer and i was like oh, I, I don't know who you are and he's like <laughs> I, I am i am the creator of neocron we want to we want you to host our files and i was like oh oh it was like god was calling me on the phone because <laughs> when i wasn't playing uh working i was playing this game and so I got in business with them and basically took it at a loss because I just was so excited to work with them. But I think what it really did is it it kind of pulled back the curtains a little bit that there were actual people making these games and they weren't kind of growing magically out of the ground in Germany somewhere. And yeah. that planted a seed in my head was with, oh, this is, this is a human being that I'm talking to and I have a relationship with now. I can do this. And so with a little bit of the money from our profits for the other company, we spun up a studio. This was, and this, keep in mind, this was early 2000s. So there were no game engines, really. I think Torque was out. So our option was to make our own game engine. And we're like, we'll just hire some programmers. How hard can it be to make a game engine? <laughs> and that went on for like five years until Oof. finally I was like, nope. This isn't going to work. We're, we we have like a, a Tetris clone at this point and a Mario game. And then one thing led to another and we got into using the unreal development kit around 2008 2009 after kind of taking a hiatus in, in real estate mm -hmm. and we were making our own fps game and we had this cool idea for a, for a sci-fi game and we were posting on the unreal forums about our progress and after you know six or eight months of that we started getting people coming to us and saying hey could you could you help us on our game we'll pay you money and a bunch of starving artists and starving programmers getting offered money were like, we can do this for a couple of hours on the side. Uh -huh. And so we started doing a little bit of that. But as more and more of these offers started coming in, 
and I started learning about these other games that the other indies were making, it became very clear that my idea for our game was really not that original or that creative as all of these other games were like either the same thing or better. And so I realized that, you know, the strength that we had back then wasn't some grand idea for some sci-fi shooter. It was our ability to assemble a team and execute on a plan. And so we really shifted around 2009 and became a full work for hire studio just so that we could gather a larger and larger team, gather more experience with the kind of end goal, the end dream of making our own game with the help of more creative designers than I am. And so that went on for five years. That studio is called Iron Belly Studios. So we've been in business now for 12 years as a work for hire studio. But about five or six years ago, uh, a couple of amazing gentlemen from the West Coast came and said, hey, we have this idea. We want to collaborate with you on a survival game. Would you like to come on board and and discuss it and, and kind of forge a partnership here, taking all of the knowledge and experience and talent that we had at Iron Belly and merging it in to have like an actual project that would be our own to work towards. Hmm. And that started us down this journey of making Fractured Veil. It wow. just like making our own engine 20 years ago, making an online massive survival game ended up being a lot harder than we <laughs> thought it was because we were supposed to be net profitable in 2017. But it is 2021, and we are going to Kickstarter. Uh, after five years of developing the core technology and the core game loops so that we can essentially present Kickstarter or our Kickstarter audience with an actual game that is optimized, it's stable, you can log into the servers 24-7. We have the actual game, but now it's time to fill that game with a lot of custom content. And that's where we want to bring our community on board. Gotcha. So it's kind of a long story in terms of how I got started and how the game that we're working on got started. Yeah, um, although yeah. it's kind of like the, the Coles notes. So if, if you want to dive deeper into any of that, let me know. But that's sure, the past sure. 21 years of my life. <laughs> Isn't it interesting uh, wrapping up uh, like an entire uh, decade or two of your life into a few sentences? It seems... Uh, yeah, which high, which high points do I want to focus on and everything because I, I could have made that a 30 minute story but yeah it, I'm sure, it's, it's, I'm sure. It's, it's interesting what kind of sticks out in my mind as well when I think about telling that story um, but you just think what's the beginning what's the middle what's the end right and well the, the end is near but it's one of these things just to keep in mind for people that are listening that are maybe at the beginning end of this that's the beginning of this journey is that all of this stuff takes so much longer than you ever think it will yes and the problem is, is that we we like to fixate on like that 0.1% that it didn't take longer than they thought it would, or it was faster. And we just think that's me. But <laughs> the way that probability works is that that 0.1% is not going to be you. And you just have to grind and pick yourself up and pick yourself up again after getting kicked down and then grind and grind and grind. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, first off. So iron belly was before paddle Creek, um, which Correct. is the, the studio you're working at now. Are those two, uh, separate studios or did iron belly become paddle Creek games? Nope. There are separate studios. Okay. So, so are you working out of both of them at the same time now then? 
Well, we have an amazing staff of producers and bookkeepers and associate producers and everybody else that really helped me run so much of the operation at, at Iron Belly. So mm -hmm. I do oversee operations there. And then the majority of my focus, especially right now with the Kickstarter, is on Fractured Veil. And then the idea right. would be once Fractured Veil does like fully blow up, we would be shifting as much of the Iron Belly side of things over to Paddle Creek um, gotcha. because again, we would be, we've run We've been running a service, a service company for 12 years. And you can talk to anybody that runs service companies. It's it may, one of the most fulfilling things in the world is helping other people realize their vision, but it does, it does kind of get you itching a little bit to <laughs> kind of want to take your life into your own hands right. um, after, right. after 12 years. Yeah, I mean, you spend so much time building up their dreams that you're like, okay, well, where are my dreams, right? Why well, I need some yeah. dreams too. Well, I mean, my my dreams were really on building other people's dreams. That was that was, I think, what we found to be the fulfilling aspect of it because you mm -hmm. not only got to make the great game, but then you got to help somebody else achieve their dreams. But it got to a point where we've really reached this critical mass of experience and talent and organization organizational structure um, that. You know, we're providing tremendous value for other people because of all of the years that we've been doing this. And it's 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 so exciting to be able to turn all of that effort uh, inwards or at least eventually turn it inwards. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dive a little bit deeper in the the idea of you moving away from Iron Belly. Obviously, you're still overseeing it, but but taking that opportunity to then work with these these gentlemen you mentioned. What was it? Because I, I'm sure there's a little bit of, you know, being a part of that company and then taking this dive to uh, spend now five years working on this game, you know, there must have been something that was really um, influential or something that that really uh, sparked interest in you, right? What was it about their their offer or their, you know, their um, their interest that had you saying, you know what, I this is a, a shot that I have to take, right? I would say in terms of the motivation for deepening that relationship and taking the plunge, part of being an entrepreneur is having that risk-taking gene. And I would say, you know, much to my detriment over the years, that gene is probably a lot stronger than it should be. And when it became very clear that these are two individuals that I really want to work with because I have great respect for what they've accomplished in life, for how you know generous and honest they are as well as uh, just a personal alignment. And then the product itself being something that I'm very passionate about. A longtime survival game player, I was you know, logging dozens of hours a week in Rust at that point and grew up with kind of MMOs that overlapped a lot of the vision for this game. Mm -hmm. That risk-taking gene kicked into overdrive and I saw the potential of what this could be. And I think that just wiped all of the thought of risk out of my head and there was really there was there was only one choice at that point, and that was kind of an all or nothing approach. Right, right. I, I love it. Um, you mentioned those two people, yourself being the third that I can see on the uh, the company page for uh, for Fractured Veil. I see those mm -hmm. three different people that are listed. Are there only three people working on the product that's been created from this five year period so far? Oh goodness, no! Like we, okay, I was, I would, I was I, so confused because I was like, "There's no way three people." <laughs> <laughs> no, all of this. No. So if you go to the Kickstarter page and scroll all the way down, um, they should be in there. It looks like that page might have changed. But so we have 
uh, five full-time people, myself included, that are working on the development of the game. Uh, and then there's the, the other two founders of Paddle Creek. Mm-hmm. And then a series of contractors that come in either at a, par- a regular part-time basis or they'll come in for a month or two when we have some extra resources or we really want to push for, let's say, a, like a, a god piece in the game, like you know, a big, huge structure that the player is going to go within or some new custom weapons or animations. Right. And so those people will come in, do their thing, and then leave. So yeah, if you go to the Kickstarter page and scroll down, you'll see the three pictures of us. And then you'll see, you know, Grant Schonkweiler is a lead producer, game designer. He comes from id and Epic. We've got Chris Gunderson, John Mead, and another mystery engineer that would rather not be named. Hmm. Uh, our, our amazing tech artist out of Belgium. And then, you know, the list goes on. So in terms of the people that are currently actively contributing to the project, I think we're, we're at between 13 and 15 people. Okay. Um, and then five of those are full-time. Wow. So that's the reason when people ask why... Why has this taken five years? It's because we have a team of essentially five instead of fifty or right, um, right. You know, two Ks, two Ks, Ks, five hundred. <laughs> yeah, they're a little stacked in comparison. Um, a little stacked, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't take anything away from this. Uh, I still think that even you know five years with only that amount of people it is pretty incredible what you have come up with so far from what I've seen from trailers and images and just the general. Uh, theme around this i think is something to be said for uh for congrats um thanks of course uh but that gives us a good transition to actually dive into the game itself i think you know segue segue time (laughs) for those who don't know anything about the game or you know haven't heard about fractured veil you know what is this what's your elevator pitch what makes it special kind of how do you sell this to people Oh, right. Fractured Veil is a massively survival MMO set in Hawaii 100 years in the future after a global catastrophe wipes out civilization. It's a crafting, base building, PvE, PvP, open world survival game. Um, So what I would say... I like the actual uh, (laughs) elevator pitch voice for it, too. Yeah, I got to crank the dials on my soundboard for that. But (laughs) what, yeah, essentially Fractured Veil is a survival MMO. So if 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 you really look at Fractured Veil in terms of the ways that we want to push the boundaries. What we're doing is we're taking the MMO genre and the survival genre, and we're bringing them together in kind of a new and unique way. And there's kind of three things that I can think of off the top of my head that that symbolize that. One is the concurrent count, and we're looking at 500 players per world. Wow. So turning the MMO dial-up in a survival game a lot. The other is... Um, the deep player progression and leveling system. So we're kind of turning the MMO dial up in a survival game there again. But then the other is looking at the PVX side of things and how we're going to balance people that want to PVE and PVP. So that's kind of turning the survival knob up on an MMO a lot. And it's, it's, it's ambitious, it's hard. And that's, again, another reason why we spent the past five years working on this is getting the back-end infrastructure in place to handle those kind of player accounts, throwing in things like seamless server travel on top of that to allow players to move from server to server and each server representing a slightly different twist on the theme, and then balancing people that want to PVE, that want to craft, that want to base build in relative safety with people that want full open world PVP. 
So mm-hmm. for, for some like casual MMO players, this is going to be a little bit more hardcore than they're used to. For some serious hardcore Rust players, this is going to be a little less hardcore than, than, than they're used to. Hmm. But we think that there's a spot in the middle of those two camps that's going to provide a much deeper and grander game experience than they would either realize in their comfort zones. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a great way to put all this. There's so much to unpack from this. The first one that I really have Holy a question God. on is uh, just obviously where did this all come from, right? What was it about bringing you know the survival games or the MMO world and kind of blending them together? I love when when people will take genres and and, and mash them up and try to mm. to flip the script uh, essentially. Right. But I, yeah. I looked at um, I believe it was in your Kickstarter in the video you mentioned kind of not feeling satisfied with survival uh, right. games. And I wanted to, you know, kind of touch upon that and what that meant and kind of where I'm assuming that led to this this change of trying to mash these together. Can you talk a little bit about that, some of that frustration or or that not feeling satisfied sense? Totally, totally. So, and I think just come this comes from 30 years of, 35 years of playing video games. And then kind of like I said in my my hero's journey of becoming a game developer, it's what was I being exposed to? And then what elements of those products were really, really appealing to me? And the MMO that I was playing when I first got introduced into the industry, it was a more hardcore MMO. It was much more faster paced. Mm. It was a shooter. It was a little bit less forgiving. So I was playing an MMO that really showed me that you didn't have to have this kind of point click wait for your character kill monster move to the next one kind of experience it could be fast paced and it could be at a scale mm-hmm. that was much grander than every other shooter but then at this but then you know rust came out the daisy the daisy mod came out seven days that i came out and then they brought that action pack thing in but then they lacked any sort of depth when it came to your player progression kind of world exploration was really put off to the side so you've right. kind of got these two types of games that i've been really passionate about in my life and they both offered elements that were really compelling but not there wasn't enough overlap they didn't offer enough of the same elements to be kind of a package deal and i looked I looked around and I looked at the games I was playing and I was just thinking, why can't we have a survival game with deep player progression? Why can't we have a survival game at a scale of an MMO with the kind of the grandness of an MMO? Or more, more importantly, why can't we have an MMO that is a little bit more hardcore, that is a little bit more Twitch-based? And I understand why we couldn't 20 years ago because the mm-hmm. technology to provide that experience hadn't been invented yet. But now with the power that we have at our disposal in the cloud with modern GPUs and CPUs. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse to not do these things. And so that's what started this kind of five-year journey off of design, of taking the, the things from both of these camps that I really loved that weren't present in the, in the other and bringing them together but with, with certain exceptions. There were just certain things that we're not going to be able to do because it's so infeasible or it's just not fun to have 20,000 people in a, in a shooter <laughs> server. Um, right. But yeah, that's, that's really it. Yeah. You, you keep mentioning the word hardcore and I want to barrel down on that a little bit. Are you referring to the idea of having more of like real time mechanics in a game or is there something a little bit more to that? Right. So I guess when, when I look at, I, when I look at hardcore, I'm talking more about consequences to your actions. Hmm. And I think that's what 
I really miss in most MMOs, especially MMOs today, is the lack of any real consequences to failure. And what we want to do is balance that with something that's so punishing, like like Rust, for example. So Rust, Rust is such a good example in terms of what I look for for a successful survival game. And just from a business point, if you look at its its player growth, it's it's the only survival game that has experienced the growth over its lifetime in the genre. So as of last month, there was an average of like 120,000 concurrent players, or maybe that's where they peak at. And two months after launch, they were doing between 15 and 20,000. So no other game, I don't even know in the world, but maybe EVE Online is another example. No other game has shown that consistent growth over time like that. So it tells me that people are willing to kind of put up with a little bit more of a punishing experience. But it's an example of of a game where I don't think it needs to be that punishing to be appealing. So hardcore comes down to um, just how many how much consequences are there to to failure. And in a lot of MMOs, you die, you respawn, you don't really lose anything, you just go back at it again. In Rust, you die, you lose everything, you have to start from scratch, and there's probably a guy with a stick waiting to kill you the moment you respawn. So these are like two <laughs> extreme examples of too hardcore and not hardcore enough. And the problem with things not being hardcore enough in the sense of there's not consequences to your actions is that there's also not a lot of weight to your successes either. It's kind of just this this treadmill that you get on, but there's there's no real weight to your accomplishments because there's right. no real danger in the first place. Um, yeah. And so I guess that's 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 what that's the hardcore dial that I'm kind of tweaking a little bit more than most MMOs. I think I'm turning it down a little bit for most survival games, not turning it all the way down and making this like a, a Valheim explode. Even Valheim's pretty unforgiving when you die. <laughs> but for most MMOs, I'm turning the dial way up. And for most survival games, I might be turning it down a little bit. Gotcha. And finding that balance where you can have you can have people fail and not feel like giving up, but you can have people that when they succeed, it was to overcome some serious risk. And I think mm -hmm. that just gives more weight to the player's actions as they play through. Yeah, yeah. Now I know this this causes a lot of concerns when it comes to balancing and and I know that there are always going to be people who want it to be the way that it was intended or the way that it was designed initially, but um, the first thing that comes to mind when when talking about all these, you know, you refer to it as dials, and I know you're using that as a metaphor, more of just like understanding what level you want to use. But is there any idea that down the road you would have something like servers that can be uh, twisted in certain ways? You know, say I wanted to uh, have a world where some of that punishment was either harsher or maybe not as harsh. Right. Will the players have? Uh, a world of that kind of opportunity or is it more uh and and obviously it could be maybe in the future but right now no because you know you're still designing it but is that something that you're thinking about so there's a couple of problems that are involved with giving that much player control on a server by server basis one is in order to hit the concurrent numbers that we need to hit we need to do a lot of custom work on the backend infrastructure. So this means right. that for every game world that gets spun up, there's really four servers that support it. It's kind mm -hmm. of like an aircraft carrier fleet, right? It's not You don't just send a ship out into the ocean. There's like an armada of support ships that make sure nobody starves to death or it has fuel or whatever else. And right. with, with our game servers, 
the only way to hit a, a concurrent count of 500 players is to start decoupling as many of the systems from the game server and spreading them over multiple CPUs. Gotcha. So that eliminates the possibility of a, a random player to just spin up a computer in his basement and connect it into the grid. Mm. And then the other is that the idea we want to push is all of these worlds that we have are connected in a way that players can travel to and from, much like you know, imagining the star map in Elite Dangerous or Star Citizen where you're hopping from system to system. Right. So it's a way that we don't have the mechanics for someone to pull up a menu and say, join this server or whatnot right now, but it has to be connected into this star map in a way. So it's something that we've talked about and thought about and are certainly interested in doing where people could say, lease a server from us. It would be mm -hmm. connected in our data center because that's the only way to do this. Right. And it would somehow be semi-disconnected from the rest of the grid so that they couldn't crank up settings on resources or whatever else and then completely- Jump to a different one. Right, and take all of those resources with them. It's right. it's it's certainly it's certainly a heavy lift and this is where that MMO dial gets turned up a little bit mm -hmm. where you know you don't have private servers in in WoW or New World or anything like that and we're going to just have to figure out how to solve those two or three challenges before we move anywhere until then however um kind of what I just alluded to with the the server map of multi servers we will be spinning up a multitude of servers that if you kind of imagine that star map could be traveled to once you find the pathway into them and then they will be variations on a theme. So you can imagine like a hub and spoke model where you've got a flagship server in the middle and then satellite servers around it. And those will all have a consistent theme to them, which would be the biome. So you'd have a jungle server like what we have right now, and then the satellite servers would be things like the day-night cycle is completely different. Mutants have overrun the entire server. There are no mutants on the server, all of this stuff. And then they uh -huh. could travel, if they found the pathway, to another flagship server, which would now be a completely different biome. So now you're worried about things like surviving in a frozen wasteland. And again, those that, that flagship server would have its own satellite servers with its own tweaks. And the idea is that the players are not just exploring the island of Maui, but they're exploring this kind of metaverse of Maui's where each server could have its own history and secrets and players are kind of setting down roots in this server because they like something about it. And it's it's going from kind of being a tourist from server to server to figuring out kind of where you want to put down your, your roots. And then yeah. learning what is unique about that server, what resources or enemies only exist there, and how you might be able to take those resources and bring them back to a different server and have something unique to trade. Like, there's a lot of avenues we can explore with that. That's really um, interesting. Is there is there a concern that um, you know, especially because you're you're building a home, right? You're building mm -hmm. your base. Uh, what happens when you build your base in in one server or one biome and you then go to a different one? Is it still mm -hmm. going to retain that base in that location? Or is it almost like, you know, whenever you start a base, you're starting like a home area in, this is a bad way to, to talk about it in the context of this game. But I think of like, if you thought of uh, like a solar system, right? It would be mm -hmm. like, this is my planet. This is my home. And then you go to a different planet and then it's, right. you know, you've got that different biome. Is it, is it more of that structure? So there's, there's a few challenges that we have to overcome with seamless server travel. And we do round tables with large 
clans and groups that you know provide me with amazing context for how they as a large group can completely derail my utopian plans and one of them is what do you do when a group of like 500 people jump on a server and then just wipe everybody else out on it and fill the login queue so nobody else can log in and then they just move to the next server and do the same thing and the same thing and so right right the the challenge of solving that problem kind of addresses what you're talking about, which is we didn't really have to look any further than kind of the U.S. Immigration Service or the Canadian Immigration <laughs> Service of how do we handle people that want to move from a country to a different country. And it's a graduated process with our game. It won't be a five-year process like it was to get my wife from America into Canada, but <laughs> it will be a process where you kind of have to earn the right to greater and greater permissions in that server. So you're going to have your home base in kind of, let's say, the, the jungle biome, mm -hmm. but you've just discovered the pathway to get to the winter biome, and you're like, there's some really cool stuff there. I want to move there. And so you have to kind of go there as a tourist, which gets you a limited amount of time to do certain things that's going to gain your reputation, then go back to your, your kind of home base, get more resources to kind of you know, gear up and then go back and do it again and do it again as you move from a tourist to a, like a work equivalent of a work visa to a permanent resident to a citizen. And at that point, yeah, you're probably going to have to surrender your property or perhaps pay a, like a, an increased upkeep for your property in the old server uh, to maintain the one in this one, or else we're just going to have one person occupying an enormous amount of real estate across multiple servers right. that that really would hamper our ability to spread people out over servers, which is the other main benefit of doing this is that you can have 20,000 people playing the game at the same time, but they're all spread out over these different servers and they can all theoretically bump into each other at the same time. But um, again, you, you have to put these kind of gates in place to prevent, to, to allow you to scale like that. Right, right. Yeah, I, I can imagine it is a tough task uh, yeah. to to take on, but it sounds like it sounds like you have kind of a good, uh, you know, first couple of steps on it. It sounds like you're you're heading in the right direction. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea behind all of this because what's cool about this of of like just in general, this is a really cool idea from a game mechanic perspective. But I think that the story behind it is also very interesting because, you know, it it would be one thing if you were just like, yeah, servers and you could travel around, but there is a background to this. Can you tell a little bit about the story and kind of how you came up with this idea of, you know, these fractured veils? Sure, sure. So I think our our story, the main kind of start of our story, it's in, it's, it's, it's 2028 or 2030 or somewhere around there is there was this physicist that discovered this new technology to instantaneously move people or things anywhere on the planet. You kind of think of like, you know, quantum tunneling works. So just imagine a very large quantum tunnel that can move a truck. Mm -hmm. And it kind of brought into play this new veil era where we had all of these veils, which are kind of like our, our, our portals that could, you know, transport goods and services and people from one spot to the other. But as is the case in most storylines like this, the technology wasn't properly researched and it wasn't properly understood before it was adopted at a wide wide scale and the whole thing just imploded and the global network collapsed, causing this chain reaction that 
fractured, which is where the name comes from, fractured our dimension into these shards or these alternate dimensions um, that these veils would now lead to. And because of that, all of these kind of timelines, not only did they fracture, but they just started smashing into each other. And there was this period of time where, you know, much like that, I, I love using the movie Annihilation as a reference where you just start having the DNA of different species coming together that should not be brought together. Mm -hmm. And you start forming these, these terrible mutated horrors throughout the world. Humanity itself is wiped out, starve, like almost entirely wiped out. Starvation takes out most of everybody else. And then there throughout all of this, there's this orbiting space station with this AI kind of looking over um, kind of a backup of humanity through kind of genetic information and cloning technology, kind of watching all of this unfold. And she waits until the dust settles and the earth is ready to be repopulated and then starts sending down kind of the technology, the machinery to start start cloning humans again so that they can rebuild civilization. And so that's where the game really takes place is you are that first wave of these kind of clone pioneers that are ready to go and rebuild using the island of Maui as a jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's so cool. I, I love the idea. I'm a huge post-apocalyptic uh, mm -hmm. nerd when it comes to stories. So I, I definitely jive well with it. Um, speaking of story, you know, when you talk about MMOs or you talk about survival games, when I think of survival games, I think of them having very light stories, right? It's like just enough to kind of get you to string you along to do the more replayability part, which is that either the, the PVP or being able to build the coolest bases that you could possibly imagine. Is there going to be, um, because you're structuring this in more of an MMO style, because you have this, this interesting story and background, is there going to be in your mind like an end game to this as far as like what you're doing? And I know this is obviously early in because a lot of what you've done is, is more of laying down the foundation, but that mm -hmm. extra content is coming now. But like in your mind, do you have kind of a story or some type of like, what do we do to to get to the end of this, right? Like, what is my goal in this? It could be just have an amazing time in these different servers and there's replayability from that. But is there a story that strings me along as well? Hmm. So, yeah, I think the, the easy answer is no. There's no end game. There's no, you've finished everything. Um, kind of wipe your hands and and call it a day. It is It is more like a survival game in that regards where mm -hmm. the end game, um, the end game is fairly open-ended, be it, be it in a PVE survival game or a PVP survival game, you, you kind of, it, it is what you make of it in the mm -hmm. sense of if you sure. are a person that, that end game is I've crafted all of the top tier loot um, then yeah, there's going to get a point where you've made that last item at the highest quality you can possibly make it. And then you just have to wait for, I guess, new recipes to come out. If it's, <laughs> you know, right. I'm a hardcore PVE -er, it's, I've, I've finished this last dungeon. I've beat it for the, the fifth time, whatever else Then I can kind of wipe my hands clean. But I think what's great about these games with MMOs is that it's at that point, it's easy, easy, easy enough for us to just make one more dungeon and keep adding more content on to that journey for players. But I think the real open-endedness comes 
comes down to how you're going to interact with other players in the sense of if you look at a game like EVE Online, there's certainly a finite amount of content, but there's a relatively infinite amount of ways that the players can interface with that content. And there's right. always, even if you're not a PvP player and you've never shot shot a gun in your life in that game or a torpedo or a, a laser or a cannon or whatever else you want to equip your ship with, mm -hmm. you're going to always have somebody that you're competing against in terms of trading, a, a bigger, better ship that you can acquire. And I think that's that's where the strength of these games come in. And that's definitely something that we're aiming for is like, there's always going to be a bigger base to build. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be kind of a server to go and be the, 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 the biggest fish on that server in terms of who's crafting the best guns, who's got who's got the best trading established. And, and then there's always going to be the PVP element as well, which is like, right. who's the top dog on this server versus the other server I'm in. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, no. That being said, what, what excites me a lot about turning up that MMO dial on a survival game is having the story play a more important role to why you're going somewhere and what you're doing. We right. can have, we can have you go and gather 500 wood and deliver it back to a village to help them with you know their walls and it's just a simple 500 wood go get this bring it here mission accomplished or you know we can you know take a page out of skyrim's book and just look at why are you gathering that wood what is the end result whose daughter is it going to help and all of like you can create these <laughs> right. beautiful stories and we get a lot of requests for that and that's something that we're really excited to infused into the game because over the last five years as the engineers and the artists have been kind of building this world in ones and zeros uh our we have an amazing writer who is also part of our communications and community team and he's been just he's just, just been spending the last five years just writing backstory for everything so if you go to fracturedveil.com story you can just see five years of news articles and fictitious mm -hmm. blog posts and everything like that and all of that content is going to make its way back into the game so that you're not just gathering 500 wood to get some arbitrary arbitrary uh, quest completion reward. You're doing it to you know, help build that guy a doghouse so that he can keep a guard against mutants that try to kill his sheep in the middle of the night or whatever. Right. Whatever right. people need wood for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whatever they need wood for. No, I love mm -hmm. it. I, I love the idea of building this context, building this world. It just strengthens more of the, you know, there, there's a reason, you know, I think that it's, it's hard to get away from things like fetch quests and, and, uh, right. pieces like that. It, it's kind of innate in a lot of these types of, of games and just games in general. Like a lot of games are in a sense, just glorified fetch quests. Um, yeah, but that yeah. being said, they don't feel like that if there is that emotion tied to it, or if the mechanics are fun and it sounds like you're trying to do both. Right. Like, and I think that's going to help bring that that uh string that along if you will of having the person want to continue forward now yeah you you talked a lot about you know this this idea of there's many things that you can do based on what you want and we talked a little bit about kind of that that fine tuning of what does a pve versus pvp world mean and i think that there's a lot of kind of struggles with the way that you're setting this up. So I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because I, you know, we're talking about jumping to these servers that are kind of predefined in the world that you end up 
sitting in, being in that biome, being in that, like, this is where you get certain resources or what, what have you. Um, that makes it seem like there wouldn't be servers that are just specifically, this is my PVE side, right? This sounds like it's, it's going to be a collective of people who might want to be a part of both worlds, uh, but not, not solely just, I can only pick player versus environment. You have to have a little bit of both. How have you been kind of fine tuning that specifically to make sure that, you know, one group of people isn't, uh, isn't burned by this, whereas the others still get to feel that enjoyment of getting what they want realistically. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest challenges with trying to do what we want to do is that it, it opens the door for a very small amount of people to ruin the experience for a very large amount right. of people. Right. And so what we want to do is make sure that we have systems in place that equal those scales as much as possible without arbitrarily limiting player choice. And I think that's the real strength of survival games is they showed gamers what's possible if you can essentially just go do anything and there's no, there's no sets of rules of where you have to go. There's no quest line to follow in a linear fashion. There's no, you can't shoot this person. You can't do that with this person. You can't build a base with just a limited set of parts. Like you gave survival games really gave people so much creative freedom. And you know, I go all the way, you know, Minecraft is in this as well. It mm -hmm. started a whole trend of players wanting to play the game their way. And so what I want to do is I want to make sure that we don't lose that. But I also, right. again, as I was saying, recognize that my way of playing this game could ruin your way of playing this game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so because as a potato farmer, you have no real way to ruin my way, my game back, the game itself has to put in place certain things that would ruin my game for ruining your game. And some of that comes down to things like a karma system. It comes down to certain areas of the map that are going to be heavily patrolled by NPCs, by flying drones. It's going to come down to that karma system, a system affecting which settlements you can go into, which vendors, be it in settlements or traveling through the world, you're going to be able to interact with, which guards are going to attack you on site. Hmm. We have a, a live streaming drone. Every flagship world will have a live streaming drone, or even maybe every single world will have a live streaming drone, just like our world does now. And you can go to twitch.tv slash fracturedbale, and this drone essentially tries to find the most kind of egregious offenders <laughs> of kind of unbalancing these these scales. And then uh -huh. it just follows them and streams them to Twitch and YouTube and Steam 24 hours a day. It, it doesn't follow one person. But as this person enters into what would be considered like a high security area, he's going to, he or she are going to, going to attract the the drones that are going to either start harassing them or just start streaming their location to the rest of the world in real right. time. So I, I call it like the 12-step program of balance because it's a whole number of systems that need to work well in tandem in order to pull this off. And until we can achieve that to the satisfaction of you know our audience and our community, for now, we're just taking a very kind of brute force approach and just saying this part of the map you can PV pve and this part of the map you can pvp gotcha. so it's a, it's a very 
inelegant solution that <laughs> we hope will not be too long lasting. But at this current stage, there are just parts of the map where you can't damage other players. And gotcha. there are parts of the map where you can. Um, but the idea is eventually eliminating that kind of arbitrary restriction and really only focusing it in settlements and safe zones where new players spawn and things like yeah. that. I love the the idea of having the streaming. Like, first off, a lot of those things that you mentioned, I think, will help. Um, but I think the main thing that I'm so excited about is that the droid following the person who is the the most naughty, if you will, on the right. island because it 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 puts them on blast, and then you have this almost uh, this wanted, you know, poster that is right. just showcased that you can have people who want to play this game who are on the side of uh if you will heroes and mm. maybe they're the people who are like oh i'm the superhero of this server i make sure whoever is that naughty list is taken out right right well i mean what i love about it is that it it appeals to exactly that person that you just described but in a way, it's also going to appeal to the naughty guy because now he's famous or she's mm -hmm. famous. Yeah. And so it's something where it's it's not, I don't think it's 100% negative to either side of this equation, but it certainly does make that naughty person's life tremendously difficult. <laughs> and um, it's it's funny. We I was watching this play out one day. There was a somebody running around killing people. And we, it was part of a like a test that we were doing for PvP. So everybody was killing people, but somebody I don't know got flagged by the drone, and it was a nighttime battle that that we were testing. Uh -huh. And the drone just fixated on this one person. And at nighttime, the drone has three modes: one is night vision, one is thermal, and the other is a spotlight. And this the 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 killer had one of the machine guns, and his target had a bow. But because the drone was just shining this giant spotlight on the guy, he was just like blinded while everybody <laughs> else in the darkness could just see him bright as day. And you just watched him trying to shoot into the darkness at this guy with a bow. And the guy would just like casually crouch down, wait for him to run by, shoot with the bow a couple of times. And he'd spin around with his gun and the drone is shining <laughs> the light in his face. And it was just, I was just like, this works. This is so great. If yeah. this was an actual situation where this griefer was just trying to make everybody's life miserable not only do you see, you see this huge spotlight like a police helicopter in the sky just like following this sky around but it just lights him up so much that he just can't see what's in the darkness and so i mean obviously this only applies at nighttime but it it, 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 it was just so nice to see kind of our theories play out in real time yeah yeah that's i mean it's an awesome story it's a testament to those systems being something that can work. Um, I have a very selfish question that applies to probably only me, but maybe a few others out there. Uh, it's a real big um, just pet peeve of mine when it mm. comes to survival games. Do you have to eat and drink in this game? Yes. Ah. Uh, okay. All right. So you're, I, I'm guessing you're not a fan of scum then. Because uh, so we so in the survival genre we're, we go pretty easy on the player. You've got games like Scum that you have to maintain your potassium levels, your calcium, your protein, yeah, your never, carbohydrates. I would never. So no, so definitely eating and drinking is a thing, and that that opens up a whole path of player progression that gets us really excited. So there's I I mean I reference this game all the time. I'm a bit too much of a fanboy of Cryofall, I think, because. 
nobody knows what I'm talking about, but cryofall went a little bit too far, I think, in terms of just how often you had to eat. But what I love about it is that because eating just stuff that you found on the ground would only satiate you for a short period of time, it really put a lot of value on the people that knew really high-level crafting recipes for mm -hmm. casseroles and apple pies and all of this stuff. In most games, like New World or whatnot, you kind of in MMOs, you kind of craft these high-level cooking recipes a lot a lot of the times for superficial reasons. But in this, it, it really made a huge difference because I only had to eat like like a, an apple pie or like a meat casserole once every three hours, where I had to eat an apple once every 10 minutes. Right. And yeah. what we really want to do with this survival game is expand the potential for player progression in as many different ways as we can. So that if you do want to be that guy that is just amazing at cooking. Now, all of a sudden, you can take your stuff, you can sell it at a premium, people want to play with you, you're providing value to people in your own special way that's different from the way that I provide value. And I think that's something that really, you know, coming back to what's left me disappointed about survival games is the whole player progression aspect of it was fairly shallow or focused so much in one direction that it really didn't allow you to progress in the areas that interested you the most. So yeah. yeah, I hear you there, but just think you get to build really cool coconut canteens that are going to keep you hydrated. You get to go and harvest rare herbs and spices that's going to allow you or maybe the person that you're sharing a house with to make this amazing lasagna that's going to give you a special ability to chop down trees faster and keep you satiated for four hours and it, it opens up the possibilities to provide value. And I really, really like that. But to your point, we don't want to make it so laborious that you don't get to play the game because you're just constantly like that. That's what I didn't like about DayZ when it came out. Mm -hmm. It's like I just I just spent my entire life looking for candy bars <laughs> in houses and on the verge of starving to death. And I didn't get to do the stuff that I wanted, uh, which was to play the game, shoot people and kill zombies. Yeah, yeah. I I have two last questions, and I think that's a great uh, transition into uh, the idea of kind of taking the tedious nature out of some tasks. It was something that right. in the Kickstarter you mentioned. Uh, right. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those? One of the things that I saw was uh, the fact that when you're building like a larger vehicle, you're actually going to different places on it. It's not mm. just, you know, hitting the same button and just being like, all right, wait for a loading bar to finish, right? Like, can you tell me a little bit more of, of what aspects you're trying to sort of fix, I guess? Maybe not right. the best word for it, but, but maybe well, update a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're touching on two different points. One, sure. The the one is how do we make how do we make in in that case of the vehicle, how do we make crafting or in, in our case we call this fabrication, how do we make this a more collaborative or at least a more possibly collaborative experience so that like you said, it's not just you one dude clicking a craft button and then oh everybody gets a vehicle, but it's something that if it's a large object like a vehicle or an oil derrick or something like that, a group of people can A, come together and build it faster, or you know B, just be able to share in the accomplishment of building this thing, just like you would if you were building a base together. Right. So collaboration is a really big aspect of what we want to do here. Now that opens a whole door up where how do you prevent a large group of players from having such an advantage over a small group of players mm. that it's like a last oasis situation where everybody in a group less than five just gets steamrolled and right. doesn't want to play the game anymore. So 
that's a balancing act that we solve with with other systems. But the key is is we really want to give groups of people more options to collaborate and kind of share in this the accomplishments that are aren't just killing other people. And then in terms of removing the tedium, that's something that as kind of a min maxer and kind of an OCD for organization, I'm huge about. And this is one of the areas where I was not satisfied just iterating on what's already existed. And I wasn't satisfied just kind of taking taking the inventory system from Rust or from Daisy and just saying like, yeah, just make it 5% better. What I wanted to do is I wanted to look at it from a deeper UX perspective. And sure, the inventories look similar, but how do we manage how do we manage resources? What do we spend time doing in these games that's not the thing we want to be doing? So for right. example, I'm playing with a group of five people. I have OCD and like organizational anxiety. And you guys go out and have fun and then just you just dump all of your crap into a chest by the front door. And I'm like, this, this will not, this will not do. This this cannot stand. Yeah. We need our wood in that chest. We need our stone in that chest. Because five minutes later, you're gonna come back and be like, Where's the stone? I've got 20 pieces in this chest and eight pieces in that chest. And I'm the one that stays home while everybody else is having fun, just like moving stuff around into the chest. And so we looked at things like that or things like base building and how many time, how many clicks are we spending? How much time are we spending in menus? And we just said, there's got to be a better way. And so instead of looking at other games for that, we certainly look at other games for a starting point, but instead of looking at other games to try to figure out how do we organize information and data, we started looking at productivity tools, things like Trello, things like Jira, things like Target Process, wow, things okay. like Box.com. And we're like, how do these project management tools and productivity tools organize information and how do we do this better? And so when you go into our inventory, you'll see a lot more options for quickly organizing things. You'll see the ability to just view the contents of all of the containers or chests that are within range and then move things from chest to chest from a single unified UI, as opposed to having to open and close, open and close, open and close. You find ways of quickly matching kind of similar resources together. So you can just quickly dump all of your stone into the chest it belongs in and all of your wood into the chest it belongs in. And it's funny because in games like Valheim and, and whatever else, you see a ton of mods coming out to help players organize this stuff better. But they, for whatever reason, they never get implemented into the yeah. games it's set in themselves. And we kind of looked at that and was like, I, I mean, you can go all the way back to the DayZ mod. And I think like Soviet Womble did a, a phenomenal video essay of the shortcomings of DayZ and, and where they really dropped the ball. And I think this, the TLDR is they didn't look at what the most popular mods were for the DayZ mod and say, this is a clear indication of what people want. We should put this into the final product. Yeah. Um, and they're not alone. Game developers do this all the time. Whereas we kind of looked at those things and went, this is a great indication of what people want and we should listen to that and then we should implement that. And that's what we try to do at a lot of different levels with the project is really listen to what the community is telling us to do because the collective ideas of 4,000 people are always going to be better than the greatest ideas of four people right and yeah. try, try to try to crowdsource those ideas and and implement them as you know as as much as we can yeah uh i have one final question which first off ryan thank you so much for coming on um but i always like to wrap these up by asking just about some general advice it sounds like you've had quite 
a wealth of history when it comes to being in, you know, this industry of working with people, of getting that experience and that uh, just knowledge on this subject of building video games. And I kind of just wanted to talk about, you know, what exactly if you were let's let's even take it from the perspective of like five years ago before fractured veil if you were to tell yourself something now uh whether it be like one or or two things what what's the piece of advice that you would have given past ryan i mean i guess it i guess it depends on if it's past ryan running a service company or past ryan starting this venture with paddle creek i would say with Paddle Creek and making your own product early on, if you can, just find really, really smart, experienced people. And even if they're only there for a very small amount of time each week to kind of check over things and help guide and direct things, and not necessarily talking about consultants, because consultants they don't tend to work out too often. I'm talking about like very technically skilled people. For example, if you're not a 3D artist, finding a very senior experienced 3D artist that can check over the work of the team members that you have on, assuming they aren't 20 year mm-hmm. vets. If you're not a, a senior programmer like myself, having somebody that can vet, you know, the the architecture ideas and the technical design documents and the work on a week to week basis, just so that you can catch things earlier because as a person running a studio, you're going to be responsible for kind of green lighting or setting the the pace and direction for every single department um, as a small indie studio. If you're running Warner Brothers, then you have creative directors and technical directors and art directors. But past Ryan, I would say, go find some really, really smart people on the engineering side, on the 3D side, and just pay them however much you can for an hour or two every week. Um, just to help you to help you learn some of those lessons without having to learn them the hard way or help you course correct before things go on for six months or eight months and then have to be scrapped and redone because somebody took the wrong path and you just didn't know that it was the wrong path. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's good, uh, good advice. Um, for those listening, Fractured Veil is currently on Kickstarter. Be sure to head over there to their page. If you're interested, obviously help them out. Um, and if you know it's not right for you, but you still are interested in the game, you can definitely head over to their Steam page. Make sure you wishlist it because it does help them out as well. Once again, Ryan, thank you so much for joining today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was really great to just have a little bit more of an in-depth conversation about game development and the industry as a whole. I mean, you're doing you're doing an amazing thing here, and I totally wish you so much of the best of luck so that you can keep on doing this and providing this tremendous value. Um, it's one of the things that I really think needs to change or is changing about the industry of having a deeper relationship with our audience and with our players. So I'm super excited that you are a bridge to that and just shedding a little bit more light on you know the people and the processes behind making these entire these incredible games that we all have grown up and loved.